Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal government is getting set to lift part of the PCR testing requirement for vaccinated travelers, but it's only for short trips. Is this going to encourage more Canadians to plan that trip across the border? Aaron O'Toole is listed the creator of Canada Proud Network amid the public challenge for his leadership. Does the conservative leader have more troubles than just Senator Batters? And Justin Bates, the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, will join us to discuss the concerns with the province's new plan to allow symptomatic COVID testing at pharmacies. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots going on in Washington uh, because the Prime Minister's down there for the Three Amigos. Uh, yesterday, uh, among many other uh, public appearances uh, the Prime Minister made, he also announced that Ottawa is going to be dropping the costly COVID-19 PCR test for Canadians returning home. That was a very controversial decision to put that in place in, in the first place and very costly decision for an awful lot of Canadians. Uh, joining us to talk about that and, and, well, a couple of other things that are going on in Washington, please do welcome back to the program uh, Perrin Beattie. Perrin, of course, is the President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Perrin, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Bill. Glad to be with you. You've been one of the strongest voices of, uh, for the government to change this policy about the testing, first of all. And, and finally, they, they've listened to you and, and others, of course, who have spoken up about this. Uh, but I get the sense that you don't think they went far enough, Perrin. Well, exactly. They've, they've half listened in this instance. So what okay. they've done, uh, what they we believe they're going to do, because they haven't made the announcement as yet, is uh, to announce that, that they're going to eliminate the costly PCR test for Canadians cross the border and come back within 72 hours. What we have today is the absurdity that, for example, with the folks who are with the Prime Minister in Washington, they would, they would get their PCR test uh, in Ottawa before they got on the plane to fly down to Washington to enable them to be readmitted to Canada. It simply makes no sense at all and simply is a costly and, and uh, bureaucratic measure. Um, the government's likely going to do away with that, but they'll still require any American coming into Canada to take the PCR test. And they're going to require anybody who's in, who's out of Canada for the 73rd hour or more to do so. And it just makes no sense. We're, it requires that people be doubly vaccinated. That's the important element, not uh, adding a costly test on top of that. The 72 hours, just as I read that yesterday, and it, it seemed very arbitrary to me. Like, where do you draw that line, or why do you draw that line? Well, you know, you've, you've asked the question I can't answer. And, you know, what the government has to answer is, why are you safe up to 72 hours and you suddenly become dangerous at the 73rd hour? It makes no sense at all. And the impact of what they're doing is, yes, this will be great for people in the Niagara Peninsula who want to go off on a day trip to, to Upper New York State, uh, that's great. They won't have to take this PCR test coming back in. But anybody coming from the States who's thinking, gee, why don't we go up for the day to Niagara-on-the-Lake or to Hamilton or London or wherever, um, is going to be required to take this. And it's hundreds of dollars that we're talking about. And it effectively means that American tourists we'll still have that disincentive to come to Canada at the same time as we'll make it easier for Canadians to do their shopping in the U.S. Well, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, there are an awful lot of Americans I know that own property up here uh, for the last couple of years have not been able to access it. Now it's going to cost them an arm and a leg to come up here. Exactly. And it just makes no sense. Now, if you were traveling from any part of Canada to to come to London or to, to Hamilton, you wouldn't be required to take a test to be able to do that. 
Yet suddenly, because you're crossing the border, you're required to do so. COVID doesn't read your passport. Uh, It does understand whether or not you've been vaccinated. And uh, the requirement that the government puts on travel in Canada is that you need to be fully vaccinated. If if somebody is coming from the United States, is fully vaccinated, the same rules should apply. And we should, the other thing we need to do in taking the friction and cost uh, out of the border is that the same rules coming north as there are going south. Uh, It shouldn't matter which direction you're going in, and it shouldn't matter which mode of transportation you're using. Uh, and by the way, this is pressure from both sides of the border. And I know the president's down, or the prime minister's in Washington right now. Uh, Senator Schumer and uh, Susan Collins and Amy Klobuchar have all written a letter saying, please, you know, let's let's be sensible about this. Uh, I'm hoping he has time to read that and maybe even talk to them, because I know he's had meetings with all of them over the last uh, couple of hours. Uh, while I've got you here, though, I know your time is tight, Perrin. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Washington. And, and I've been sure. mentioning, we're going to get into greater detail about this in, in, on the show, but Maybe you could just underscore the importance of of what has to be done uh, during the meeting, especially between the Prime Minister and President Biden vis-a-vis by America. This is, a, a to, to use an American phrase, a clear and present danger to the Canadian economy. It is. You know, we had all expected at this time last year, when we had the American presidential elections, that a change in administration would mean that we would have uh, a president in Washington to be much more friendly to Canada and and would want to partner with Canada and want to restore the special relationship that Canada has, has traditionally had. But instead of the special relationship, now Washington is treating this as a transactional relationship where it's simply looking at each issue and saying what's in our immediate interest in Washington. And they're fixated on the off-year elections, which are coming up next year. So their decisions are being driven by short-term domestic political considerations in the U.S., rather than by strategic considerations, well, what's best in the longer term for North America. So first off, uh, they killed off Keystone XL. And then the president, within a matter of months, was begging OPEC to increase their production to bring down uh, energy prices in the United States. It made no sense. He doubled down on Buy American. It was the Trump policy that he actually strengthened to be more discriminatory. Uh, most importantly, right now, they have brought in incentives of up to uh, $12,500 for Americans buying American-made uh, e-vehicles. Uh, that means that for the Ford plant in Oakville, uh, they're up against a uh, $12,500 U.S. disincentive to purchase from Oakville right from the, uh, right from the outset. And then there are a number of other areas as well where it's it's clear that that it's this is being driven by domestic political concerns as opposed to what makes sense in the longer term for our two countries. And, and the essence of this, I got about enough here, uh, is is uh, the assertion by the Canadian contingent. I think there's some some validity to this. Is what they're suggesting in the states now does contravene the NAFTA deals and and the uh, well the auto pack deals uh, that even predated that as well. I mean, can, can that be made clear? And is it going to have any different any influence at all on the president? Uh, I hope so, but but I'm you know it's 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 uh, it's it would be very cautious hope at best. At the same time as the prime minister was arriving in Washington to make the argument that these discriminatory measures uh, were contrary to COSMA and uh, contrary to, to the best interests of both countries, uh, President Biden was out of Washington. He was in Detroit visiting a, uh, a plant that was building and test driving an e-vehicle. 
and highlighting the measures that he has to support American production of e-vehicles. So uh, there was a pretty clear message to the prime minister that uh, the president's focused on this domestic issue as opposed to what his international obligations are or, or what makes sense in the partnership with Canada. Well, more to come on this. We'll see how the meeting goes later on today. Uh, always a pleasure, Perrin, to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. I know after these meetings, I'm sure we'll uh, hook up again and talk about uh, the results of that, but uh, we do appreciate your time today. Anytime, Bill. My pleasure. Take care. Perrin Beatty, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and uh, by the way, just from the historical perspective, also a former cabinet minister, of course, in the Mulroney government, so he knows about the political side of this stuff as well. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML, 980 CFPL. Uh, Speaking of, of things on this side of the border politically, uh, a lot of concern about what's going to be happening when Parliament resumes in just a few days now. Uh, there's a lot of talk about what's going on in Ottawa. Aaron O'Toole is under attack from members of his own caucus, uh, lashing out at uh, what he calls uh, the Liberal NDP coalition, uh, which had a lot of people shaking their heads and scratching their heads saying, what coalition is he talking about? Well, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Uh, Jagmeet, a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. It's great to be back on the show. Let me ask you right up front then and, and, and address Mr. O'Toole's comments uh, because I mean, he's, he's making a lot about this. Even yesterday when he was trying to deflect criticism about what's going on in his own party, he again brought up this idea that you and, and the prime minister have, have formed some sort of a deal here, some sort of a, a coalition to get things going. It, 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 could, please comment on that. There's absolutely no coalition. That's just not on the table. Uh, and I don't know where he's coming up with that. I have said to the Prime Minister that there are things that, that I want to see happen, and I am interested in heeding the will of Canadians who elected a minority government, so I want to make Parliament work. And to that extent, if there are ways for us to make things happen that will make life better for Canadians, I want to do that. There's a couple of things that we talked about that I said, if you were interested in doing them, we've already campaigned on them. So we can make it happen right away. One of those is paid sick leave, for example. I believe it's a no-brainer at this point. It's clear that people should be able to stay at home when they're sick, given the pandemic has shown us that, and that how workplace transmission was one of the one of the highest risks throughout the whole pandemic when we were going through the 18 past months. So things like that we could do right away. There's things that uh, we agree on in terms of um, making sure we we end uh, conversion therapy or or lifting the blood ban. There's things that we can pass immediately. And there's things that, that we know we need to work on. Uh, and seeing what's happened in BC, the horrible flooding, uh, the extreme extreme weather in the summer, now the extreme weather now with the rain now, we know that the climate crisis is hitting hard. So we've got to do our part to keep communities safe. So let's build more resilient communities. Let's invest in infrastructure, creating local community jobs, but making sure communities can deal with extreme weather that's getting more and more normal and coming more and more often. There are some similarities. Anybody who's fought in the election understands that some of the things that uh, that the Liberals talked about doing in this term and some of the things that you talked about during the campaign trail, uh, there was a great deal of, of, of commonality to them, uh, some details that need to be worked out, etc. Uh, one of the criticisms about this government over the last couple of terms that they've been in office is that, uh, yeah, they, they talk a good game, but they don't always implement a lot of what they're doing. Uh, do you see yourself as maybe the catalyst to move the government to do some of these things? Uh, pharmacare, uh, paid sick days, there's a number of things right now that uh, that are getting a lot of conversation, but we're not seeing much in the way of legislation. Well, this is bang on. This is what we've been seeing, and this is what people have been saying. It sounds like sometimes the liberals are, are talking about the things that people care about, and it sounds like the, they're saying the right things, but they don't do it. 
And and so that is actually one of the things that we're really focused on. Our team sat down and said, well, let's let's force them to get some of these things done, and let's call their bluff. If they actually want to do any of these things that that they talk about, they don't have an excuse. Actually, um, if they really do want to bring in paid sick leave, we've said all, all over the past eighteen months, over twenty two times, I asked the question in Parliament, let's expand paid sick leave and make it so that all Canadians can have access to something that makes sure that they don't have to go into work sick. And initially, Liberals said no 22 times. So now they changed their mind in the middle of the campaign. If it's truly the case, well, there's no barrier. We we agree that this needs to get done. So we're calling the bluff on that. Uh, things like childcare. We we believe in childcare. The Liberals have seemed to move forward on it. But uh, one of our big concerns is these aren't permanent deals. These are uh, one-offs that, that have to be re-signed every so often. So we're saying, let's make this permanent. Let's make it so that in Canada, no one has to worry about the cost of childcare. Uh, I, as you know, I'm going to be a dad soon, so I, I can mm-hmm. I can start imagining what this is like on a personal level. But I've heard from so many people, uh, so many families that want to get back to work and are saying it's so hard to find childcare. It's one of the big barriers for lots of families to get back into into their jobs. So that's something important. Let's make that happen. Uh, people right now are struggling to find housing. It's really expensive. There are some fixes that we can put in place that would actually cool the market in the sense of the out-of-control housing prices that are being pressured by a lot of foreign investment. We, we can tackle that. We know that we need to build more homes that are affordable. We know that there are, uh, there are pressures that are driving up the cost of housing, people that are property, flip, property flipping. Uh, that has to be limited. So there's things that we can do immediately to help people out when it comes to housing as well. So these are another example. That's another example of something that we could do right away that that would actually help people. If the liberals actually want to do it, we're here to make it happen. Well, as a soon-to-be dad, and I'm glad you touched on the childcare issue. Uh, the announcement earlier this week, of course, the, the Alberta signed on. I don't know that anybody saw that coming, but it, that's that's good on them. Ontario mm-hmm. is holding out uh, right now, and and uh, you know apparently the, the premier here wants more money. Uh, you've got roots here in Ontario. You've got a lot of family here in Ontario. Uh, this is going to have an impact on here. What would your message be to the premier here, to, vis-a-vis uh, child care program? I'd, I'd hate to think that we're going to be the one province that doesn't jump on side here. Yeah, I mean, that is it's being on the wrong side of history. It would just be completely unimaginable that we would have one of the largest provinces uh, in the country not sign on to a, to a child care deal. Like, um, I'm sure he knows how important this is. And so I don't understand why he'd be reluctant to, to work to make this happen. So Doug Ford has shown again and again kind of an unwillingness to really speak to what people are going through and, and to deliver on what people need. And this would be just a, a horrible thing if it comes to pass that Ontario doesn't have something. Uh, like you said, I've, I've got my, my brother and he's got a young one. Uh, my my sister-in-law, my, my mom and dad are here. My parents, my sister, or my wife's mom and dad are here. Uh, so lots of lots of family that would definitely benefit from, from having childcare. And I know lots of families and lots of people uh, that desperately need it in this in this province. So it would it would make a big difference. So my message would be, get the deal done. Well, you'd like to think that there are some issues that are just going to be bipartisan and stop being parochial about them. And childcare, you would think, just like Medicare, should be one of those issues. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where the evidence is really clear that when you've got a childcare that function, it just actually makes sense for everybody. There's a there's a work uh, worker shortage in a lot of a lot of communities, and and that's across Canada. And one of the ways to address the worker shortage would be if if families that have uh, that have got childcare needs 
had access to affordable childcare, they could go back to work. But right now, and you know this really well, Bill, you, you probably heard the stories, there are families that look at the cost of childcare and then look at going to work and say, well, it just doesn't add up. If I, if I go to work and I've got to put my kid in childcare, it costs so much that it really negates the whole point of working. It's not worth it for me financially. And that shouldn't be what's going on. If someone wants to work, if that's the choice they want to make, they shouldn't have the barrier that they can't afford childcare and then they can't find a way to get a job that actually covers the cost of childcare and makes sense for their family. So it would help a lot of ways. It would help us restart the economy. It's definitely a strong economic move. It's something that makes sense for families. It's something that makes sense for kids. And uh, all the other countries in the world that have been really successful on this have shown the benefits. We look at Finland and, and Norway and Sweden, the, the Scandinavian countries, and it really has a, a massive change in, in lives of people, and it makes really good sense. Well, uh, Parliament gets back to work next week, and hopefully we'll see some action on some of these uh, issues. Uh, always a pleasure, uh, Mr. Singh. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy, your, I guess, the last couple of days off, well, if you ever politicians ever get days off, I suppose. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about these down the road. Thanks again for today. Sounds great. Take care. Take care. Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP party. Uh, November 22nd, the uh, the first day, by the way, that they're back in uh, the House of Commons. Most of them. Uh, well, those who are showing proof of vaccination, that is. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's going on with the pharmacies? What's going on with COVID testing? It's a controversial issue on this side of the border, too. Uh, the provincial NDP are now raising safety concerns about the Ford government's plan to allow Ontario pharmacies to start offering COVID-19 tests for symptomatic people. Andrea Horvath, leader of the NDP, is calling on the Ford government to pause the new program until the association uh, looks at some of the risks and safety protocols that can be clarified. Uh, pharmacologist uh, Sabina Vrara Miller says that, uh, well, she can appreciate the idea of making testing more accessible, but she says it has to be done the right way and not all pharmacies are going to be able to offer this. What I, I don't necessarily agree with is whether pharmacies are actually the right spot to increase symptomatic testing. And the reason for this is because many pharmacies are simply not equipped to have that space that is required to Mm -hmm. do symptomatic testing. I mean, you know, many pharmacies are are pretty tight, typically have very limited space. And what you don't want is a pharmacy becoming a a hotspot area where you can actually transmit COVID. All strong arguments. it seems as if the government's pretty set on this, and we want to get the the perspective on the people that will actually uh, be involved in this on the front line. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Justin Bates. Uh, Justin is the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Justin, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Glad to be with you. Talk to us maybe, if, if you could, about uh, the decision the government has made here. Uh, w- was your association in on those discussions before the policy was actually made? Yes, we've been engaged with the government on uh, all files related to COVID and pharmacy. uh, And really, this is something that expands on an existing program that was implemented back in September 2020 for COVID testing. And it's really intended to increase access and the equity of that access and help uh, protect communities. And I I don't disagree with a lot of the the narratives and concerns, um, which is, you know, I think fair and has merit, uh, which is why we've spent considerable time working through all of the uh, considerations and elements that need to be put in place in order to safely implement this. And, And I would say that absolutely that this isn't for every pharmacy. Not every pharmacy will be participating. There's about 1,300 out of the approximately 5,000, so just a, about a quarter of the pharmacies that uh, have gone through 
their risk assessment based on the guidelines to say, okay, can we do this based on our staffing levels, based on our staffing comfort with providing this type of service, the ability to adhere to the IPAC protocol, the seizures, the space requirements, um, ventilation, uh, proper airflow with proper filters. All of these are uh, basically a checklist that pharmacies who have put their hand up to participate have gone through. Um, so we're confident that not only can this be done safely, but that uh, we will mitigate any of the uh, risk factors that are associated with this, including not having the customers uh, co-mingling with those that are coming in for a specific appointment. It'll be in and out of the, the pharmacy for the test. And to that point, I mean, I, I understand the concerns and that, that uh, Andrea Horvath is making. I know some others have, have jumped in on this as well. Because uh, I know that, because we've talked about this on the program, uh, there's a feeling in some circles that, that maybe we're getting a little lax in our in our COVID protocols. You know, we're not masking as much. We're not enforcing that. Uh, social distancing seems to be an afterthought sometimes. I'm not seeing that in any of the pharmacies I've been in in, in the last six or eight months. Uh, they're still very much inside with on side with what's going on here. Masking is 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 necessary. It's mandated. Uh, the social distancing; those marks are still on the floor. Uh, the plexiglass thing is up there by the pharmacist section. Um, yeah, you know, I, I know the one that I usually go to in the Ancaster area here. Uh, you know, if you're getting a shot or if there's a testing going on, there's a separate room that that you go to. You don't just stand out there in the in the the aisleways and get this done. So, I, I, those those are legitimate concerns, but. I would argue, from my experience anyway, that the members of your organization have already taken those precautions. Absolutely, and, and those that will be participating in this program have undertaken that assessment to say, what more do we need to do to be able to adhere to all of the guidance, which includes the appropriate and proper use of uh, personal protective equipment. Um, all of these recommendations that have been put forward uh, to participate have been uh, vetted by the regulatory college, the Ontario College of Pharmacists. It just updated their guidance to pharmacies participating, and their mandate is to protect the public, as well as public health experts and, and medical experts, uh, including the chief medical officer of health, who have gone through all of the IPAC protocols, which is the infectious uh, protection uh, and controls measures that are put in place to keep people safe and and it will be strictly adhered to um, and and as I said earlier I think you know it's not for everyone you have to have a separate area and a space to do this you have to have as an operator and a manager you would be able to and should be having the conversations with your staff if they're not comfortable doing it then you need to provide alternative options for them whether that's refer the patient to a different location or a different pharmacist to do it we want to do this respectfully. We want to be listening to all pharmacy teams. I think a mandated uh, vaccine would be vaccination status would be important as well, whether the employer does that uh, in the absence of having our college or the government have mandated all pharmacy teams to be vaccinated or not. Um, you know, these are all the measures that are put in place. But I think we also have to be realistic here. Look at the, the risk is there today. Now, we're increasing the risk without question with all of the appropriate measures in place by doing symptomatic testing, but undoubtedly, and most certainly, there are people that are going into all retail establishments masking, but could have asymptomatic, um, could be asymptomatic positive. They could be with symptoms and still going in there. So you have a risk today. And if you go into a restaurant with not knowing the workers there, whether they're vaccinated or not, you take your mask off, there's a risk. You've got people congregating at sporting events, vaccinated, but could still be carriers, could still transmit. 
there are risks that, you know, we have to assume when we do these things and we're healthcare providers looking to provide additional services and doing that in the safest way possible. And I think that's really where the emphasis should be. I always want to get the feedback from the people that are on the front lines too. And in this case, it's, it's, it's the pharmacists and of course their staffs in situations like this. And I was interested in this statistic uh, that uh, I'm sure our listeners would, would want to know about. Uh, more than a thousand pharmacies have already applied for, to offer these tests. That's compared to about 200 that are currently offering the asymptomatic customers. Uh, and these are the people that, that would be well aware of, of the concerns that you and I have just talked about here. Uh, and they seem to feel that, you know, their, their particular idea, uh, place, I guess, has, has taken all these precautions. Uh, I, I got a feel, and I'm not trying to be naive about this, Justin, that if they feel it's safe to do, then we should feel safe. Agreed. Yeah, I think absolutely. We would not be doing this to put any patients at risk or other customers. Uh, I think there's been very careful consideration of participation, no different than when we started this on asymptomatic patients, some of whom actually tested positive. So that means there were people that were positive in uh, these locations, but we didn't have any outbreaks that were significant uh, in terms of the number of them. Uh, with pharmacy staff or customers, or at least have any correlation that we could demonstrate that this is a result of it. And that's because we've done this already safely. We've implemented all of the safety measures to ensure that it can be done. Now, this program is going to offer multiple options, and we'll hear more about it at 2 p.m. when the Minister of Health uh, does the formal government announcement. But it's not all going to be in-store testing. So there is a take-home drop-off element. You can take the test home, drop it off. If you're in a, uh, a, a education setting where you get the tests, you can do them from home and drop them off at a pharmacy. Also, the language for this is around the premise, in the premise of the pharmacy, which means in a parking lot, uh, sidewalk, back area of the pharmacy outdoors, you can still collect the lab specimen and then bring it in for packaging and ultimately shipping to the to the lab. So not all of it's going to be in store, and I think that helps mitigate the risk. We certainly want to be able to manage the traffic flow and ensure that you know people aren't commingling and buying other things while they're in there for that specific service, and that's part of the protocols that will be put in place. I'm assuming this is done by appointment, is it, Justin? It is, yeah. This will be appointment only, and it's for that very reason. We want to make sure that we manage the volume of people in the stores and that we can control that aspect so that there's very clear entrance and exit and not going into the other areas of the store. That patient will also need to be going through their own assessment screening before they arrive. They have to be masked um, uh, in addition to the pharmacy staff. So we believe with those measures in place, and even Dr. Bogosh uh, yesterday in some of his interviews said, ideally you do this outdoors where possible, and we, we wouldn't disagree with that. And it can be done indoors when implemented safely with all of the measures in place. So that's the approach we're taking. And this has all been uh, considered in terms of having the guidance updated. And, and, you know, I think I understand that some people aren't comfortable with it and people need to make an informed choice. So pharmacies will uh, display in the front a sign that says, we are a symptomatic COVID testing site so that the customers can at least make that decision. Uh, and the, the appointment thing, I think, is, is very interesting and I think it's very germane to the discussion here too. I, I just don't want people to have this picture in their mind of about you know six or seven people lined up in a queue here waiting to get tested you know coughing and sneezing and say gee I hope I don't have COVID. Uh, it's it's going to be done judiciously there's only going to be that person there uh, and 
you know, they, as you say, the pharmacies now already take precautions about that, about, you know, mingling with other customers in, in other parts of the store and things of this nature. Uh, and it's not for everybody. Your point's well taken. And if, if you don't feel comfortable like that, I guess to obviously talk to the pharmacy about it. But uh, I think that would probably result in some sort of a discussion about, well, the precautions that are being taken and how this is actually going to pan out. Uh, it's not a one size fits all, though, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, Justin. Uh, different pharmacies are going to have different setups and be able to do things differently. And some may just say, yeah, we'd like to, but we don't have the facility here, so we can't. 100%. Yeah. And that's why we made it a voluntary opt in model. And each of the pharmacies has to demonstrate that they can implement all of the safety measures, have that separate space and area to do this in, uh, in order to be approved. And we've actually gone through an onboarding process over the last several weeks to prepare the pharmacies to get the test kits delivered so that when government announces this and people start calling their pharmacy or uh, setting up appointments, uh, we're ready to go. And, and that's been, I think, helpful in terms of the education component and having the uh, time to be able to talk to the pharmacy teams to demonstrate being implemented and put in all the measures that need to be in place. If there's a positive test, what happens then? What's the protocol? Uh, well, that person would have to uh, quarantine, uh, self-isolate, uh, as reported into public health. Um, and it would be the same as if uh, the uh, you were at a public health uh, testing center. So mm -hmm. you'd be notified. If you've had a positive result, um, it will be logged, and uh, at that point, uh, you would have to take all of the precautionary measures uh, by staying at home. Uh, which is, as you say, the same as it is at the testing center. That's also logged with the the, 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 the local uh, Department of Health, of course, uh, so that it's on record, uh, and the protocol has to come into place there, too. Uh, well, we'll see. As you say, the legislation, and I know the minister is going to talk about this in greater detail uh, later on, and uh, we'll get some of the other details about that and uh, what's going on. It is endorsed, though, as you said, by uh, the chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore. Uh, he says this is a good idea. I know there are some uh, that are still skeptical about this, but uh, the proof will always be, I guess, in the delivery of this. Uh, while I got you, quick question. Uh, we know that uh, the vaccine program is continuing at pharmacies. Uh, many of them, of course, have done quite well with the the, the uptake on this, and I'm sure that's one of the factors uh, that have actually uh, led us to about the 85 or 86 percent uh, fully vaccinated that we have in the province. Uh, we're getting word that probably tomorrow uh, they're going to announce the children's vaccine is going to be available, and uh, apparently there's a lot of supply that's going to be uh, available to children uh, once that starts happening. Uh, those are the under-12s, of course. Are, are pharmacies going to be a part of that program, Justin? Have you had those discussions with the government? We have, yeah. It will be a multi-pronged approach with pediatricians, family physicians, some public health clinics that will operate um, and ramp up. Um, there's 1.3 million youth between 5 and 11 in mm -hmm. Ontario. And the good news is that the supply will be here uh, when uh, the announcement is made for approval. And uh, that's a, a far cry from where we were at the beginning of the vaccine uh, rollout mm -hmm. for adults, where supply interruptions were a big challenge and eligibility was changing and guidance, and uh, that made it for a, a tricky uh, rollout. But this time, I think, yes, we're absolutely prepared. We'll be part of that um, rollout uh, in addition to boosters, uh, the third shots that currently are 70 and over and other criteria, but eventually that's going to be open up to the general population for third shots and pharmacies will continue to be involved. Uh, and, and the children's vaccine, I know they're going to make this official, I guess, when if in fact it is going to be tomorrow morning, that seems to be the indicator at this stage. It's uh, going to be, I think it's every eight weeks. Uh, the first and second dose, I think there's an eight-week uh, gap, uh, not unlike what they did with the adult vaccines. I know there's some concern about that because I guess down in the States, it's only three weeks 
uh, between the first and second dose for kids. Uh, but uh, Health Canada and the other agencies uh, have decided uh, because of the efficacy, I guess, of that first uh, shot that uh, the eight weeks is, is the more appropriate time. Plus the fact is, as you and I discussed I think, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we found out that the longer you do wait between that first and second dose, the, the stronger the uh, the impact of the, the vaccine. So there's, you know, we're learning, I guess, as we go along here, aren't we, Justin? Well, I would say that, you know, NASI was much uh, maligned at the beginning of the pandemic with some of the uh, guidance um, and uh, decisions that they made. But if you if you look at uh, the track record, they were spot on, uh, particularly with the delays. And there was a variety of reasons between delaying the intervals from first and second dose. Supply was one of those. But the efficacy has actually increased. Mixing as well, when you look at mixing AZ to Moderna, that has a, a very high efficacy. So I would say absolutely trust the guidance. They're the experts. Um, you know, the communication side has been challenging for sure. You know, med communications is so important. Uh, but uh, very sound advice coming from NASI throughout the pandemic uh, and, and Health Canada as well. And as always, uh, if you have any questions or concerns, talk to your pharmacists about this. They're the ones who know you and they know, uh, you know, medications and everything else. And they can give you the best advice on that. Uh, Justin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this uh, very busy time for uh, you and your organization. I appreciate you uh, jumping in with us a little bit today. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. Justin Bates, the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. And uh, as we mentioned... Uh, the official announcement from uh, the Minister of Health coming up later on today, and I'm sure there'll be some more details about that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The focus is also at Ottawa because these guys get back to work next week. November 22nd, Parliament will resume. And uh, as we just heard uh, in the last segment there, NDP leader Jack Mead Singh looking forward to trying to work cooperatively, he says, uh, with the Liberals to try to move some legislation. Aaron O'Toole, well, Aaron O'Toole has his own problems right now. Uh, the Conservative leader, of course, has been peppered with questions all week now uh, about his decision to boot Saskatchewan Senator Denise Batters out of the caucus. Of course, Batters had started a petition to hold the uh, expedited review of O'Toole's leadership, saying that the Tories feel betrayed by his flip-flops on policy issues during the election. But after a meeting with caucus and after booting her out of the caucus herself, uh, O'Toole says, oh, his team's united. People that are now allowing their frustrations and their own personal agendas or, or, or issues on the pandemic to, to interfere with our progress are not part of the team. And so we're, we're, we're focused, and that's why we made the decision last night. Uh, well, it's a distraction, to be sure. And, uh, it, it, well, you do some of the number crunching here, but exactly how many people in the caucus are actually supporting Mr. O'Toole. And it's, uh, I think, pause for concern. Join us to talk about this. And I also want to, uh, uh, of course, dovetail into what's going on in Washington. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Tasha Kierden. Uh, Tasha, of course, is a principal at Navigator and also a lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Uh, Tasha, always a pleasure. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, thank you, Bill. Yeah, you too, I hope. But let's uh, let's focus on, on, first of all, Mr. O'Toole and what's going on with the uh, the Conservative Party right now. Uh, we knew, as, as I think you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, I mean, winning is, is no for, it's always great. Losing stinks, and every time a party loses, uh, there's always going to be some discontent. We know that. Uh, but this is really boiled over, and, and I know Mr. O'Toole wants it to just go away right now. Is it going to? Well, it doesn't look like it is. Um, there's a couple of articles. Conrad uh, Yakubuski has one in the Globe and Mail. There's another one by John Doyle, uh, you know, basically detailing his problems and, in Doyle's case, concluding that his lack of charisma is a barrier to, to, to leading and to winning. And, I mean, these, when the knives come out all over the place like this, um, you know, it, it becomes harder and harder 
to, to stay on. I think Mr. O'Toole is legitimately fighting to keep caucus together and keep enough support in caucus because they could now vote him out because they did give themselves that power. Um, but it gets more difficult every time people stick in the knives. So he's, he stood up to Denise Batters, which he had to do. Um, and uh, he's shuffled his team a little bit and brought in some new people, I think, to try and, uh, and get more strategy on the ground here. And, uh, you know, we'll see how this play, plays out. I mean, clearly some people have it in for him, and, and they're, they're not probably going to stop these efforts until they get a, some kind of leadership review. Let's talk about some of the changes he made. Uh, some people may be aware of the fact that uh, he's brought in the uh, the man behind the Canada Proud and Ontario Proud social media networks, mm-hmm. uh, who's worked for him in the past, by the way. I guess it was during his leadership campaign. Uh, certainly, uh, that that's going to be. I, I know some people may say, "Well, that's really just preaching to the to the converted." Well, that's who he's trying to get to right now, isn't it? The people within his own caucus and within his own party. He's trying to reinforce support within them. Forget about the the, the greater good here of what's going on nationally. Uh, he's 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 trying to get, the, 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 I guess, the domestic issues uh, cleaned up here. Yeah, he's trying to, to shore up the base uh, because right now what, what you're seeing is a portion of the base that feels that he ran, and they say this, as a blue Tory, and then he switched his positions to be more centrist during the campaign. Um, they didn't appreciate that, and not only did they not appreciate it, it didn't succeed. And so that's, I mean, I think if he had won, obviously, no one would be having this conversation, sure. right? If, yeah. if, if that that tactic had played had had paid off but because it didn't they're saying well that's why you lost and that's why we're in this situation i don't think that's completely true i think there were a lot of reasons the tories lost i think that switching positions on issues and not being you know um a known quantity was a problem i think people didn't know enough about o'toole to vote to be comfortable voting for him so they went with the devil they did know which was justin trudeau um and there you go and so it it, it but it's an easy it's an easy argument to make um, that it was the messenger and not the message uh, that lost in the election. I think that's where they're they're trying to go with this. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, as, as we start to go through the entrails of what was left after the election, it's pretty hard to to make that determination that that his pivoting is was the key factor. Uh, I know it, it probably peed off an awful lot of people in the extreme right of the party, the Saskatchewan and Alberta elements of that. Uh, but we also know that. In part, I'm sure that his strategy switch was to try to score some points in in the 905 and the 416 mm-hmm. areas, and because that's where the the votes are in Ontario, and it didn't work. So you know, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, which goes maybe back to the point you just made is maybe people just aren't comfortable with this guy yet, or you know, they don't know enough about him, or what they do know, they're, they're not crazy about. Well, I think there, there definitely was an element of the doors. I, I've talked to former candidates, and they said that when they would go to the door, um, you know, people would say, well, what does he stand for? He said this on guns. Now he's saying this on guns. And he said, you know, uh, this on uh, vaccines. Now he's saying this on vaccines. And where's your party sit? I think that the anti-vaccination issue also is something that has haunted him because it's uh, it's sort of festered. Um, I think people are you know, that because there was the, the People's Party of Canada on the edge there, there was an option for people who were really, really strongly anti-vax to go to. But not even was comfortable going there. So you have a faction within the Conservative Party that is, you know, anti-vaccination based on the principle of freedom and choice and those kinds of things. Um, and they're also not going away. So he isn't, if they go away too far, he loses part of the base. So to your point earlier, he wants to shore up the base and he wants to say, look, I'm a strong leader. Um, it's just it's tricky right now because, you know, uh, there's so many other issues on the table. They could be attacking affordability. Uh, what's going on in Washington? Like you said, like mm-hmm. there's 
so much red meat out there for the conservatives to grab onto, and yet they're stuck now in this this sort of you know spiral of of knife the leader, which is really completely unproductive for them. You know, when these things happen in the past, and they do happen from time to time, and especially as you say with parties that are losing. Although the the last time the liberals uh, wore their dirty laundry in public, it was Paul Martin and John Cretchen, and they they were in the middle of a, a long run of, of governing, but that that didn't stop them from screwing their, the party up for about the next ten years. Uh, by the infighting that they had. But usually in those situations, though, Tasha, there's an alternative. In other words, all right, we want O'Toole out because we want Person X. There is no Person X. Yeah. I, I know, and you know, I've talked to some of the folks in, in the in the caucus who don't want to go on record. You know, they're still bringing names up like Rona Ambrose and, and, and people like, well, those people are going to avoid this like a, a, the plague. Uh, I, I think she, <laughs> yeah. I, I still maintain, I, I did a commentary, but if Rona Ambrose had been the party leader, I think they would have won the last election, probably the one before that too. But she doesn't want it. Uh, so, that, you know, cross her off the list right now. Peter McKay, I, I know the, a, a good friend of, of Senator Batters. I don't think he's the answer either. So it's it's not like there's a plan B here. No, that's, and that's, that's part of the problem is that it's, you know, they did this with Andrew Scheer. Andrew Scheer, um, you know, he lost. And so they got rid of him and then they had another leadership. And they were candidates. But like you said, a lot of them demurred uh, that round. So will they come back this round? Not likely. Um, and uh, if that's the case, then what's the field you're looking at? What's what's the talent pool? Who's going to come out? What do the conservatives need in a leader? I mean, there's these are huge questions. And if they have a leadership and nobody comes, well, that's worse, <laughs> frankly, than um, than staying with um, with O'Toole, even if they're not 100 uh, percent enamored of him. Well, especially because two of the other names that were jumping around back in those days, too, of course, were uh, Jason Kenney and Doug Ford. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think I don't think they're on that list now anyway, for a variety of reasons, uh, even within their yeah. own parties. So th- it's going to be very interesting. Let's let's pivot if we could, because I, I do want to touch on the Washington situation. I had Perrin Beatty from the chamber on here just a little while ago, uh, expressing some concern about what's going on. Uh, and I, I characterized the, the, the congressional bill that was passed here that uh, the president signed into into law on Monday as a clear and present danger to the Canadian economy. By America, mm-hmm. if, if they hold the letter of the law, as they seem to be talking about, not just the president, but the congressional leaders, uh, it, it's going to have a, a catastrophic effect, especially on the auto industry here. I mean, you've got the premier here in Ontario, Tasha, talking about, you know, we want to be the leader in building EVs and building the yeah. batteries for them. That's not going to happen if, if the, the, the Buy American policy comes into play. No, it won't. And this is a big challenge for Trudeau. Um, it's a big challenge for Canada as well, because, you know, we are actually, and Doug Ford made this point in the recent uh, fall economic statement here in Ontario, we are a potential source of raw materials for those batteries. Canada has mm-hmm. resources that could be exploited. We could be a leader in the green energy economy in terms of, of the raw materials that are needed. Um, but that's not going to happen if this you know, if by American to this extent and the electric vehicle credit um, becomes uh, becomes a reality, because this is going to be, uh, you know, just basically a, a stick in the eye to, to Canada. At the same time, you know, the U.S. cannot afford to depend on China for these materials. So it does, you know, that's the one calling card I think we really have is say, look, you're potentially in a trade war with China. You're on the outs. Um, it's not a full-fledged, full-fledged trade war. Um, with that country, and you can't afford to depend on it for your supply chain. So look north, people. Uh, here we are. We are friendly. We've always been. And um, we have a, the potential to fuel that electric vehicle and green energy future. So I think Trio has to really make that point. I think that he has to really get out there 
and there are champions, other champions like Ford, for example, who, um, you know, do carry weight uh, in the United States. Uh, He made great efforts last time around and um, connected with the previous administration. So I think it can be done again. It's just going to be a lot of work. You know, we thought when Biden came in, it would be like, oh, great. Here we are. Trump's gone. It's going to be smooth sailing. Uh Uh-uh. That's not the case at all. Could we play hardball, though? Because it may come down to that. You know, you want you want you want to build batteries, guys. We got the stuff. Or do you want to continue to rely on China? I mean, it's a it's a pretty strong argument to be made. But you're going to have to really draw a line in the sand and say it's going to be this or you don't get that. Yeah. And that's the thing. What would we what would we hold out on on them? I mean, there's a lot of cross border trade that American jobs depend on. We know this. Um, we also have the issues of, you know, line five. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We, uh, we need line five up here. And um, Michigan, you know, the attitude in Michigan and the, uh, the governor there um, is, uh, is, is really is, is a very, you know, it's, 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 there's, no, uh, there's no compromise. So how are you going to get around that? Um, that's something that we have to also really be careful about. So there's dependency on both sides. Um, and uh, I think that if Trudeau, if Trudeau really is smart, um, he's going to find a way to uh, to back channel it. I think he's not going to necessarily simply achieve it by, you know, like you said, taking a super tough line and say, no, he's going to have to back channel. They're going to have to do the same thing they did last time, which is deploy tons of Canadians to connect with the governors, to connect with senators, to connect with everyone um, whose jobs in their states are affected by, uh, you know, a shutdown of trade with Canada and say, hey, we need you on side and we need you to, to get on side quickly. And, you know, there's history here because, you know, the, the, the protectionist in the Buy America policy actually predates Trump. I mean, the Obama administration enacted that to try to get themselves out of the 0908 uh, recession. And there was yeah. a Buy America theme there, too. Uh, and Joe Biden was the vice president in charge of that program. Obama said, here, run with this. This is your thing. Well, you know, at that time, they, they did compromise. And they said, you know what? You're right. Because of the supply chain issue, uh, the lot they, you know, we know that a car crosses the border four or five times before it finally gets out of the market. We also know that most of the cars that we bought or produce here in Ontario go to the states to be sold because we don't have the, the market size here. So, it, it, you know, they, they backed off on that and said, OK, fine. Uh, you know, as long as some of it's being done in the states, I guess we can still call that uh, buying American. Uh, and Biden was the one that enacted that policy. I, I mean, he knows this. Uh, and I think the prime minister has to remind him of that and say, look, if you did it once, you have to do it again. Yeah, it's just he has a divided Congress right now. And, you know, yeah. he barely got his infrastructure bill squeaking through, and it wasn't exactly... He's got, he's got a divided it. party. So even some of the Democrats yeah. aren't on side with him. Well, that's the thing. Even within Congress, he's got division and in his own party. So it's, it's, it's he has... He's not... Uh, he didn't come in with this, you know, incredible mandate for change um, and with all the backing of, of, uh, of everyone that you would, you would want to have in your corner. So he really... He's not... He's not he's not in a strong position either. So this is this is a part of the problem is that he has to play hardball, like you said, with his own. It's like O'Toole. I've got problems with my own caucus. How do I handle it and stay and get the things I want? I want you to comment. I, I, I'm sure you read John Iverson's column in the Post today uh, talking about this very thing. But he threw a different angle on this, basically saying that uh, the, the, the Americans have a much different attitude about Canada than we probably think they do. And it has to do with the fact that it's something that Donald Trump brought up all the time is defense spending and, and partnerships in some of these defense protocols and programs. Uh, and, and Mark Norman, the former uh, deputy head, of course, of the Canadian Forces and, and mm-hmm. others uh, have already said, you know what, if you play ball with them, they'd be a lot more amenable to doing some of these other things. Uh, I, you don't hear that from the Biden, Biden administration, but they're saying that's what they're saying in back channels. Is there any legitimacy to that? Well, you know, it is interesting. Canada's lived under the U.S. defense umbrella for, well, as long as I can remember, a decade of this. And um, 
that's something that uh, you know you could say is that that's a, it's it's allowed us as a country to do, to spend our money on a lot of other things. Um, you know, we have so uh, state funded healthcare. The Americans do not. We have spent on social programs to an extent they do not. Why? A lot of their spending is on defense, and they you know it's obviously they resent that, but. The fact is that Canada has relied on the U.S. for its defense, and we don't take our military as seriously, which is Iverson's main charge. And I think there is something to that in terms of respect, um, because the country of the United States uh, nature is they they are a very military nation. They are a nation where people respect the military. Um, yes, some people will denigrate it, but mostly it is respected. So they respect other nations also that do invest in that. So Canada is at a disadvantage in that respect. Um, is it fatal? I don't know, because it's been going on for so long um, that the United States is probably just, you know, sort of used to it. That's what Canada does. But at the same time, yeah, it doesn't look good on us, especially with all the other challenges we've had in the military on sexual harassment issues and other things. The Americans have gone through their own issues with that, too. Um, but still, uh, we don't invest enough in our armed forces, and they know it. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at the end of the day today. Uh, the president and the prime minister meeting uh, in just a little while, as a matter of fact, yeah. and uh, we'll see what comes out of that. Uh, Tasha, thanks so much for this. Great to get your perspective on everything. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Tasha Carradine, of course, uh, lecturer at the uh, Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. And, of course, you can read her, her fine prose uh, in uh, the National Post and, and other national newspapers. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.